Welcome to episode 73 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, and each week I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Dr. Enric Sala, National Geographic Explorer-in-Residence, founder of Pristine Seas, and author of The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild. With a foreword written by His Royal Highness Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales, Dr. Sala's new book is his love letter to the planet, a call for protecting 30% of it by 2030, and why it makes sense ecologically, socially, and economically. And as COVID-19 has bluntly reminded us, abusing nature is a really bad idea. Speaking of covid Infections are on the rise many places in the world, so please be careful out there. And please remember, we're all in this together. While being cautious and alert, please be supportive and kind. Also, take the time to thank the people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. My conversation with Dr. Sala moved me a great deal, and I hope you'll enjoy listening to him as much as I did. And please join me over the next few weeks to hear other exciting guests, including Peter Fox Penner, author of the widely acclaimed Smart Power and the newly released Power After Carbon, Alan Scheller Wolf, professor at the Tepper School of Business at my alma mater, Carnegie Mellon University, and State Assembly member and San Diego mayoral candidate Todd Gloria. Dr. Sala is an academic turned activist who joined forces with National Geographic and founded Pristine Seas. To date, the project has protected more than 5 million square kilometers of ocean and created 22 marine reserves. Dr. Sala has received the Young Global Leader Award by the World Economic Forum, a research award from the Spanish Geographical Society, the Lowell Thomas Award from the Explorers Club, and a Hero Award from the Environmental Media Association. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm here with Enric Sala, National Geographic Explorer in Residence and the founder of Pristine Seas and also author of The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild. Enric, welcome to the Climate Champions. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. What made you feel that you had to do something to help mitigate climate change? You know, I have never been on the climate change arena I, I'm not a climate person. I'm not an energy person. It happened because I happen to work on conservation of nature, or conservation of biodiversity, what's now called nature-based solutions, nature-based climate solutions. I came through a side door, if you will. Do you remember any event that made you realize you were part of climate change mitigation? I don't know if there was a specific moment or an epiphany. I think it was a little wave after another, another, another. Since I started working on conservation, my goal was to 
help to protect large areas in the ocean, to protect large marine ecosystems and all the species in them. And it is these ecosystems on land and at sea that give us everything that we need to survive. The oxygen we breathe is produced by bacteria and microscopic algae in the ocean mostly. But they also absorb huge amounts of carbon dioxide. And the kelps, this forest of seaweeds on the coastal zone that I had been studying for years, also by growing, like the plants on the land, they absorb huge amounts of CO2, also removing CO2 from the water and the atmosphere. The first scientific paper that I ever wrote with a couple of my professors was about seagrass in the Mediterranean. I was still an undergraduate student and I had volunteered to participate in an underwater archaeology project on the Costa Brava, on the Mediterranean coast of Spain, where I'm from. And we were looking for a 16th century ship. And the ship was buried under three feet of sand and seagrass roots. There is this beautiful seagrass on the Mediterranean with lush green leaves that has this system of roots and rhizomes that compact, trap the sand. And as the sand gets trapped in between the leaves, the seagrass continues growing up and the sand accumulates and the seagrass continues growing up to escape from the, the embrace from the sand. But they leave behind all these deep roots, which at some point kind of fossilize. So the archaeologists had cut a section on that seagrass bed that was a little over three foot deep. And that was the, sh the ship, a 16th century ship. So as I was using this underwater <laughs> vacuum cleaner of sorts, getting the sand out of the remains of the ship, I noticed this one root that went from the surface all the way down like a snake, all the way down to the bottom of that trench. So, wow, that must be a very old plant. That plant is at least four centuries old because we're talking about a ship of the 16th century. So I went back to the university and I asked my professor, hey, Javier, you know, there is this amazing thing. You know, you study seagrasses. Have you ever studied a single plant like this? And he said, wow, this is cool. So he came back with me after the archaeological dig was finished and we collected some samples and we looked at how old that thing was. But also he had the idea, of, well, let's look at the, the nutrients on this route. Let's look at carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus and say, sure. Back then, nobody was talking about nature-based solutions. That was, we published the paper in 1994. Nobody was talking about coastal blue carbon or seagrasses or mangroves as important sinks for CO2. And what we found was incredible. We found that these seagrasses store these huge amounts of carbon in the sediment. But back then, of course, it was not linked to climate. So that was my first foray into the nature-based solutions, into how functioning ecosystems can help sequester carbon and help us mitigate climate change. But it was totally unknown to us that that was going to be important in the future. I guess that was the moment where climate change mitigation and conservation mixed for me, but I had no idea that that thing just happened. That's excellent. Can you talk about why climate change mitigation is personal to you? I think it should be personal to everybody. The World Economic Forum in January, at the time of the annual summit in Davos in this year, 2020, they produced this global risks 
report. And this year, for the first time, the top five risks were climate-related or nature-related. Global warming and loss of biodiversity, loss of nature, as the largest systemic risks on the planet. Now, you ask the same leaders who contributed to that report, and probably they will talk about the pandemic and the economy, but these are consequences of our not dealing with the climate crisis and not dealing with the biodiversity crisis. So it's all related. And I would love to continue living in a planet, which is a nice place to live. I don't want to see a scorched earth. I don't want the summers to be so hot that all these seagrasses that I used to study or the coral reefs that I study disappear. Everybody should be involved. Everybody should be worried that if the climate continues warming and we get closer to an irreversible catastrophe, then everybody is going to suffer. If we think that the, this pandemic has brought terrible suffering around the world, well, what could come because of irreversible climate change probably is even worse. That is my concern, but also why I think maybe we have a chance at learning from the pandemic that bad things are possible. I think you're absolutely right. Because before, people always told me, well, climate change is something that is going to happen in the future. It's not going to affect me. Biodiversity loss. This is something happening in the Amazon. This is not affecting me. Public health, infectious diseases. Oh, this is Ebola in Congo or Cameroon or whatever swine flu in China. This is not affecting me. But now, this COVID-19 pandemic... I think has made it very clear to everybody that you tamper with nature in one part of the planet and everybody around the world is going to be affected. Personally, at the individual health and well-being level, also at the public health level nationally and globally, and of course, the global economy is, according to the International Monetary Fund, is going to suffer with a cost of probably $9 trillion this and, and next year because we haven't dealt with the problem. We are responding to the consequences. And this is just one. This is just one. There are 230,000 viruses that affect humans. Most of them are harmless. Many of them are actually beneficial to humans. But there are probably trillions of different types of viruses out there it's the most abundant thing on the planet. And we are responding to a pandemic caused by just one of them. So we are all connected. There's a Star Trek movie. I think it was Star Trek Four, where <laughs> the whale aliens come back to talk to the whales, but there are no whales left. And so it's destroying humans by trying to communicate to the whales. So they have to go back in time and get a whale. Okay, I'll take that out of the podcast. <laughs> I love that one. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that one. I, I should watch it. It's a pretty old movie at this point. I'll watch it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let me know how you like it. So what you just talked about convinced me that climate change is something I should care about. But there are many people who don't believe that climate change is happening. They don't believe the data. They don't believe that it matters to them. When you meet people like that, how do you convince them otherwise? You know, years ago, I wanted to convince them. And now 
I tend not to try because life is too short and so there are some people who just don't want to listen. I remember once I was at a radio, a TV station in, in Moscow and those guys were a little, let's say, contrarians. And do you believe in climate change? So I had with me an issue of National Traffic Magazine. So I let it drop, I let it fall on the table where we were having the interview. And I said, do you believe in gravity? This is not a question of belief. Do you believe in life? Do you believe in water? So I try to be ironic and use some humor, but I'm not trying to convert the contrarians anymore. Life is too short and we better spend our time actually working with those who one can work with to, to solve these issues. I'm hearing that from a lot of people that we're past the time of trying to convince everybody that this is something we have to deal with. And instead, this is the time for action. We have enough people that understand what's going on. We even have some technology in place that could aid us. It's time to just get going at this point. I totally agree. And when it comes to technology, I tell people, look, we have this amazing machine that sucks CO2, carbon dioxide, out of the atmosphere. And it produces oxygen. And it creates habitat and produces food for many little things that then the birds eat and then some mammals eat. And it's just wonderful thing. It's called a tree. We have billions and billions of them, but we don't have enough. There used to be many more. So why don't we replant the right areas with the right trees? It's going to be much cheaper and it's going to bring much more benefits than investing in some science fiction machines that will suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and turn it into bricks or something. I did interview Howard Newman. He helped kick off an effort by Salk Institute called Harnessing Plants. And what they're doing is they're looking at changing the DNA of roots of common plants, especially ones that yield food, to have them contain more carbon mm -hmm. so that they will sequester more carbon and that it will stay in the ground longer. Do you think that's a good effort, a bad effort? I think it's a great effort, yeah. I think it, there is this thing called subarin in the roots, yes. That is what they're doing, it's subarin. There is no silver bullet, right? We're talking about the silver buckshot here. And this has an enormous potential. Another tool to add to this one is why don't we help plants continue producing more soil instead of throwing the soil away? So the current system of industrial agriculture is the most disastrous, polluting, chemically dependent and wasteful way to produce food on the planet. Because we till and till and till and we throw all this poison and fertilizers and the soil is washed away every time there is a big storm and there are going to be more of them because of the increase in extreme weather events. If we shifted to regenerative agriculture, agriculture that is organic, that does not depend on these big corporations selling the farmers all these chemicals. And we have cover crops, for example, that help restore the health of the soil with all the insects and earthworms, etc. So the soil, instead of being washed away by the billions of tons every year, ending on the sea and then creating dead zones in the ocean, why don't we do the right way of agriculture where we can still feed the world with healthier food, actually, and more local food? And that soil 
could absorb so much carbon if we shifted our monocultures, our industrial agriculture to this regenerative agriculture, the natural world would be able to absorb all of our annual carbon emissions. It's crazy, right? It's, it's nature. This is why these are called nature-based solutions. And nature can do all of that for free in a much more efficient way that we can do. We just need to give it some more space. You brought up the pandemic. How has the pandemic changed what you do personally? For one, it has <laughs> locked us all at home. So I cannot be doing what I love the most, which is diving in the ocean and conducting research and producing films. So what we do is to work with communities and governments to protect some of the wildest places left in the ocean. And we conduct expeditions and scientific research and produce films. But we cannot do any of that now. Therefore, the pandemic has forced us to reevaluate how we are going to work in the future. We need to become more resilient. We need to be able to continue getting places protected and well managed, even if we cannot travel to these places. So we are reevaluating our entire mode of operation. But something that we have seen that I think it's a great one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that nature is sending us a very, very strong signal. Everybody has been super excited and sharing things on social media, seeing mountain lions on the streets of Santiago in Chile and deer inside cities in the United States, uh, foxes on, on people's backyards, dolphins and even a humpback whale swimming inside a marina in the Pacific. Nature is telling us, look what I can do. Look how much I can give you, how fast I can bounce back if you guys just give me some space. And this is exactly what we need. And people are taking bird watching, people are gardening, people are going to beaches and, and national parks because everybody has missed nature. And I hope that this is going to be an epiphany for most people, or hopefully also for most leaders. It also shows a little bit, I think, that even if we go away because of some disease or because of climate change, potentially many other species will continue. The earth will still be here. It will bounce back. So this is really not about ensuring the earth continues. It's about ensuring that we continue. That's absolutely right. It is not about all these other species. It's about ourselves, right? A friend of mine, Alan Wiseman, published this really intriguing book. I love that book. It's called The World Without Us. And it was a thought experiment. All humans disappear all of a sudden, like we vaporize. But everything that we build remains intact, right? And some horrible things will happen. For example, every nuclear power plant is going to turn into a Chernobyl because as soon as the fuel runs out at the refrigeration plants, you know, that thing is going to, <laughs> the thing is going to blow up, every one of them. But for most of the planet, nature will go back very, very quickly. The good thing is that we don't need to have another pandemic or we don't need to have another Chernobyl to see how nature recovers. And I have seen it myself in so many places around the world, on land and in the ocean, especially in the ocean. The ocean has this extraordinary ability to bounce back. I have seen places that were completely degraded, where the biggest fish was smaller than 
the pencil I was using underwater to count them. And in less than 10 years, these places can come back to near pristine, including the return of the large fish like the groupers, the jacks, the sharks. And on average, the abundance of fish, the biomass of fish, the tons of fish per square kilometer inside these protected areas where there is no fishing, no oil drilling, no mining, is on average six times larger than in unprotected areas nearby. So if we give space to nature, if we give the ocean some more space, it comes back spectacularly. You talked about how many less trees there are, and now you're talking about how many less species and animals there are. All of those help mitigate climate change, and we're reducing them at the same time we're increasing the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. It's like we're getting it from both sides. And then a third side is that the fact that the Earth is getting warmer is releasing new sources of carbon. So we're getting it three ways. Yeah, it doesn't make us look very smart, huh? <laughs> no, it does not. You mentioned making films, and I know you wrote this great book that's coming out very soon. Can you talk more about that? Give us more details? Yes, for the last 12 years with our National Geographic Pristine Seas project, we have been using research media to inspire policymakers, to inspire country leaders to protect these places. But by going to all these pristine places, places without people, I have seen what the ocean was like hundreds of years ago. These are places where you, for example, islands in the middle of the Pacific, like the Southern Line Islands that belong to the Republic of Kiribati, uninhabited, unfished, you jump in the water, and as soon as your bubbles clear, you are surrounded by sharks. And that's a great sign that says, wow, this is like I'm dropping in the African plains and I see lions, right? This is good. There are the, pre the predators are, are there, which means that the entire ecosystem below them is in good shape. And watching nature work in these places and watching how nature that cannot deliver in places where biodiversity has been depleted made me think, well, I need to share this with the world because if people understood how intricate and wonderful natural ecosystems are, they would not want to tamper with any part of this, right? You know, I use an analogy. You board the plane and the flight attendant asks you, hello, how are you doing? Uh, you should know that the plane is missing a few screws. Now, we don't know what the screws are. We don't know if they are on the engine or the, or the wing or the tail, but you should know that we're missing a few screws. Would you board that plane? We have all these species, 9 million species of plants and animals on our planet. A trillion, with T, trillion different types of microbes and many, many more viruses that interact and interdepend. And it just works. It works. Before we started screwing up big time the planet with the Industrial Revolution, seasons were predictable. The weather was stable and the time scale of a, of a human life. And this was because of biodiversity. Biodiversity brought stability to the planet. Biodiversity and that stability allowed human civilization to thrive and grow. 
So what we're doing now is basically killing the golden goose just because we have this myopic view of the planet. So this is why I wanted to write this book, The Nature of Nature, How Nature Works, and show that it is so incredibly complex that we cannot recreate what nature does. Humans cannot build an ecosystem that will keep us alive. It takes billions of dollars every year to keep four people alive in the International Space Station. Right? And this is the closest space colony we have. And it's very close. It's only 500 kilometers from us. It's not Mars. So we cannot recreate what nature gives us for free. So why are we unplugging and selling away our life support system? It does not make any sense. So that was my goal, to show from a scientific point of view, an economic point of view also, and from a moral point of view, that we need to keep as much wild on our planet as possible. And then COVID happened. And I thought, holy cow, I have to make the link here with our broken relationship with nature. So I was able to stop the book from going to the printer and write the final section on the nature of coronavirus and why the ultimate cause of this pandemic is our disrespect for nature, our broken relationship with nature. The analogy you used about how expensive it is to just create a little safe space in space for humans, and yet the Earth gives us as much space as we want. If we only treat it right, it's amazing how much it gives us, and yet we don't see the value that it gives us. Isn't it crazy? We can send a rocket to Pluto, take photographs, make scientific measurements, and send all those data back to Earth. And that same species, us, is not able to modify our behavior so we can save ourselves. That's, uh, I would say, the downside of, of humanity, our inability to look beyond the next 10 minutes. We are not long-term thinkers. We're not long-term actors, for sure. Yeah, some are, but yeah, there is something that is not quite right with human nature. Being an explorer in residence, I have to tell you, sounds like the coolest job. I was telling my family about it. <laughs> Can you talk about your journey? How did you get where you are? Well, first, explorer in residence is kind of an oxymoron, right? Uh, explorers are not supposed to be <laughs> in residence. But I used to be an academic. I'm a recovering academic. I was a professor of marine ecology at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in which is part of the University of California in San Diego. That's where I am right now, by the way. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I had a great time. It's a great place. And 10 years there in academia as a professor were wonderful. But one day I realized that all I was doing was writing the obituary of the ocean. I was describing with more and more data and more statistical precision how we were killing ocean life. So I felt like the doctor who's telling you how you're going to die with a lot of detail, but not offering a cure. And that day I decided to quit academia and dedicate my full life to the cure, to work on ocean conservation. I took a year off. I went to Catalonia, where I'm from, and came up with this idea, which I pitched to National Geographic in 2008. 
hey, let's use what National Geographic Society is famous for, exploration, research, and media, to explore, survey, document the last wild places in the ocean, and then inspire the leaders of the countries that own these places to protect them in marine reserves, in national parks, in the sea before it's too late. And for some crazy reason, they like the idea and they say, yes, so I moved to Washington DC and we've been working on this for the last 12 years. Very exciting. And I think a lot of people are very jealous. They would love to have a, a job that allowed them to follow their passion. You know, the Japanese talk about the ikigai. So ideally you want to be in the middle or you want all these circles to fully overlap, right? That's the perfectly happy, fulfilled life. However, it is not glamorous all the time. It is not diving with sharks or talking to presidents or screening films all the time. There is a lot of tedious work like we did in academia. And also, think about this, you working on climate. We are thinking about a problem that can consume humanity 24-7. It is so difficult to be optimistic. Sometimes it's depressing. Sometimes I've been tempted to say, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy the world. But I go back to the field and I see what is not there. I go to the beach or I go to a forest and I could feel the silence and I don't see the big animals. I say, no, 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 I, I cannot, you know, that, that little crisis lasts probably for 10 minutes. I have to go back and say, no, 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 I, this is not the world I want. And again, the good news is that we have time. I have seen nature come back. We just need to give it some space. I love that. Can you talk about setbacks that you've had along the way? We have had a few setbacks. Usually, we have to fight against the industrial fishing lobby who try to scare governments with argument that if we protect more of the ocean, this is going to destroy the fishing industry and it's going to diminish food security. And they throw baseless arguments and they talk about millions and millions of jobs lost, etc. But they never offer any facts, any data. And the truth is that today only 2.5% of the ocean is fully protected. Only 2.5%. And the science is telling us that we need at least 30%. So every time we try to get a place protected, we have to fight against the same people. And the worst enemy of fishing is overfishing. It's too much fishing, not protected areas. Well, there you're getting into long-term versus short-term again. You are absolutely right. And there are people on the coast, the small artisanal fishermen who come from a long tradition of fishing, who understand the ecosystem who have a good sense for the natural history and these people know we have a problem but the industrial fishing lobbies the guys who get the 22 billion dollars annually that government subsidize them with you know, to perpetuate destructive fishing practices these are the guys who are there for the short-term profit but there is more you know, we have been able to prove that when you protect these places the fish not only come back, have joke, if you don't kill the fish, they take a longer time to die, they grow larger, they have more sex, and they produce so many more eggs. 
So these protected areas are like an investment account with a principal that we set aside that grows with compound interest and then produces returns. These areas help to replenish the nearby unprotected areas. And the fishermen are catching more and their incomes are improving because of these investment accounts, these protected areas. But yet, we always have this completely baseless myth that you know conservation and prosperity are at opposites. This is probably the biggest obstacle. Now, setbacks, there was a recent one when Trump opened the New England Seamounts and Canyons Marine National Monument to commercial fishing. This is the only national monument in the Atlantic coast of the U.S. That monument represented 85% of the fully protected areas in all of the continental U.S. marine waters. Opening it to fishing is desecrating a monument that is the heritage of all Americans and the scientific and the economic arguments didn't hold any water. It was purely political. But this is the type of setback that we have been fearing for a long time. But no president of the United States before has desecrated, opened a national monument uh, to commercial exploitation like this. Well, that took me down a bit. Thank you for talking about that. Let's try to get it back up. Can you talk about some successes that you're proud of? It's difficult not to get into doom and gloom, but I always want to go back to the success stories. So thank you for <laughs> the nudge. In the last 12 years, we have been to 30 places around the world, from the Arctic to Antarctica, through the tropics. And the good news is that 22 of them have already been protected by the local governments. These are 22 marine reserves that cover a total area of almost 6 million square kilometers, which is over half the size of the United States. That's something that we could have never expected, not even not in our wildest dreams. We thought that we would be able to work with governments and communities and other partners in the protection of these places. So that's progress. When we started in 2008, about 0.1% of the ocean was fully protected. Now it's 2.5%. 7% of the ocean is in areas that have been designated or proposed as protected areas. But we need 30% by 2030. So yes, we've made lots of progress. We know that when we protect these areas, it works for the marine life. It works for the people living around them, it works for the economy, but we need to do much, much more. So even when you talk about successes, you talk about the setbacks as well, within the successes. I guess that's the way this is. Yeah, well, I feel like Sisyphus. You know, we are always pushing that boulder up the hill and we get up there and we take the hand out of the boulder to take a breath and oops, the boulder is down again. <laughs> and so there we go, rushing downhill again and pushing back up. It's a difficult, difficult fight, but the successes are so fulfilling and they are so important that every single marine reserve, every single protected area counts and we will not cease our efforts. Good. 
You talked a little bit about how you felt about the future and how sometimes it didn't look very bright. Can you expand upon how you see the next 20, 30 years with regards to climate change? Yeah, I see a bifurcation here. The first one is the bad, the worst case scenario, where we continue to elect leaders who don't believe that science runs the world. We have leaders who think about them first without understanding that we are all in this together. And as the pandemic has shown it very clearly, the health of the richest person in the world today is dependent on the health and well-being of the poorest person and the poorest country. So if we continue to elect that leadership and there is not enough government action on getting us to carbon neutrality by 2050 and by protection of 30% of our planet by 2030, then we're toast. Then we are entering into the irreversibility of global warming with countries where human life is not going to be possible outdoors most of the year, where warming is going to destroy all these ecosystems that help us store carbon, therefore accelerating warming more, where basically nature will have been depleted to a point where she will not be able to help us anymore to combat catastrophic climate change. The other scenario, the best case scenario, I think is our only option, which is we need to elect the political leaders who will understand, who will believe in the scientific facts, who will trust experts, who will have the political courage and the will to do the thing that is not only right, but economically is the smartest thing to do in the long term because the benefits of going carbon neutral, of facing fossil fuels, of shifting to a renewable energy economy, of protecting 30% of the planet by 2030, of changing the way we produce food so there is soil that continues giving us healthy food while absorbing carbon. If we do that, we will still lose 90% of the coral reefs. Right? Because the Paris Climate Agreement goal of 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius, a world with a 2 degrees Celsius average increase in temperature is a world where 90% of the corals are gone. So we will lose things irreversibly, but that world with the carbon neutrality and much more space to nature is a world that will still be a wonderful place for humans to live. Has the pandemic changed how you see that bifurcation at all, the chances either way. That's what I want to believe, right? And here I'm talking about a belief because this is not science. This is a human, <laughs> human behavior, which is probably the most complicated thing on our planet. I have seen how fast, we have all seen how fast nature can recover, can bounce back. But China is again at carbon emission levels that are higher than pre-COVID, for example. Their fishing fleet is already all over the world, 17,000 boats fishing in the high seas and in other countries' waters. Some countries are giving stimulus, economic stimulus, to prop up the industries of the past, like the most dirty fuels, for example. 
At the same time, the European Union, for example, has a very ambitious Green Deal and a biodiversity plan. The Democratic Party has a solid climate plan also. So there is hope. There is hope in this world. And I hope that the pain, the suffering that the world has experienced during the pandemic. And is experiencing. And is experiencing and will continue to experience for a little longer. That pain at the personal level, at the community level, and at the economic level is going to be so eye-opening that even the most contrarian politician will realize that the only way forward, a world that we can afford, is a world where we fix climate and we restore nature. Do you have any questions for me? Yes. Lee, you come from... I come from the biodiversity side. You come from the energy side. What is your view of the 20, 30 years? No, don't ask me that. I cannot put it as eloquently as you did, but I also believe that we're at an inflection point. I don't think there's a lot of time left to start aggressively moving to a cleaner planet. I believe we have many of the tools to do it. If we had the will and we found a way to participate as a world and agree on this and move forward with great urgency, I believe that we can keep the worst effects from happening and the worst damage from happening. I don't think there's any chance of not having some damage now because there's just too much carbon in the atmosphere with too much coming. But I do believe there's a chance for not as bad, but we really are running out of time now. Thank you. Also not very positive. But no, you know, I have another analogy that those people who discount the future, those people who are driven by that short-term greed are like, they are trying to make as much money as possible at the casino of the Titanic after hitting the iceberg, right? They didn't feel the iceberg is the problem. They're so excited about the action at the table that they don't believe what their own senses are telling them. You're right. There is a huge gas on the hull of the boat. Water is coming in. The boat is tilting. But they don't want to believe it. It's not true. What's happening is not true, right? The good news, as you said, there is hope. You said we are at an inflection point. We have not crossed that inflection point for everything. Some things will go away, but we can still save most of what makes this planet so rich and wonderful. Is there anything else you want to say? Yes, usually... When people ask me, what can I do as a normal citizen, right? I cannot talk to presidents. I cannot convince the oil companies to invest in solar or wind. What can I do? And I tell them, well, you can do two things. One is vote, especially this year at a crucial election in the U.S. If you want to have a planet with clean air, clean water, healthy food, a country where your kids are not going to get sick because they are playing outside, then you have to vote for the candidates who agree to your values, to your worldviews. This is a responsibility. Don't come complaining afterwards if you have not done your job. So you have to vote. That's one. And the other one, you have a laundry list of things that people can do, right, to improve their carbon footprint. And we can come up with a laundry list of things that we can do for people to help with biodiversity too. But... I like to say just one thing when people ask me, 
what can I do? Well, you, there is something that you can do every day, which is eat more plants and less animals. That would help you and the planet. You would probably become healthier and the amount of reduction in meat production would have a huge effect, positive effect on greenhouse gas emissions because livestock produces too much methane. It's one of the main causes of global warming. And also, all that land that is now used for production of livestock could be brought back to nature, could be restored, grasslands and forests, which would give us many more benefits than just meat. And it would help us also sequester more carbon, thus helping to mitigate climate change. So plant-based diet. It doesn't mean you shall not eat meat, but especially in the U.S., in other countries like Argentina, for example, all that meat is not necessary. We can get most proteins. We can get all these micronutrients from plants. And also our bodies cannot absorb as much protein as the average American consumes. Much of it is wasted. So eat more plants and you'll be doing your daily contribution to improving the health of the planet. Wow. Thank you. That's great advice. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. He was exploring sea grass on the ocean floor and came to climate change through the marine side door. The top risks to the planet to keep us alive are all either climate or nature. Yes, that's the top five. If we want to survive, I'm talking about you and me, we have to respect biodiversity. You made a gravity joke showing humor that is dry. When people don't believe in science, you no longer try. Your soil is experiencing a lot of great harm. We need to grow food using sustainable ways to farm. We need a world that's blue and green. When sharks are present, it means the waters are pristine. If you want to save the earth and fit into your pants, the best thing you could do is eat more plants. We need laws to have 30% protected waters created. But we went backwards when the U.S. monument was desecrated. We need the leadership of every nation if we don't want to be toast post-bifurcation. The space station holds four people and look at the cost. We have a free, beautiful place to live and soon it will be lost. Academia, it made you sad and not very merry because you are riding the ocean's obituary. Nature will recover and help the human race. We just have to give it a little more space. Wow. Boom. Lee, man, that was the best part. Unbelievable. Wow. Enric almost brought me to tears when he talked about the desecration of the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument off the coast of New England. The area includes four underwater mountains and three deep sea canyons. It is home to endangered whales and other rare species, some found nowhere else in the world. If you haven't lately, stop. Visit a lake, a park, a trail, or a beach, and take a look at the beauty our world has to offer. Underwater mountains and deep sea canyons. 
Wow. His book goes on sale August 25th, and I can't wait. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Enric couldn't continue to write the obituary of the seas. He wanted to do something to stop it. We need people like Dr. Sala to take action to stand up to their daily fears and challenges and help to mitigate climate change. Mm-hmm.